15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Craig Johnson. This week, we're going to do something new. I'm going to have an interview with Shane Burley that's going to follow this introduction segment. Uh, that said, if I miss any major pieces of fascist news this week, I'll get to them next week. All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome to 15 Minutes of Fascism's first interview. I'm super excited about this, and I'm really grateful uh, for our guest. Our guest is Shane Burley, uh, the author of Fascism Today, What It Is and How to End It, and more recently, Why We Fight, Essays on Fascism, Resistance, and Surviving the Apocalypse. Uh, these are both out of AK Press. Thanks for coming on to my show, Shane. Thanks so much for having me. I'm glad to be here. Great. Uh, I'm, I'm super excited. And uh, like I was telling Shane before I started recording, uh, this is my first time conducting an interview on a podcast. So if it sounds awful, it's because it's my first time doing it. Uh, I'm doing my best. All right. Um, Shane, I wanted to just give you a give you some time at the start here to, you know, introduce yourself, introduce your work to, you know, to listeners who might not be familiar. Um, you know, what do you do? What got you interested in studying the right wing? Yeah. Um, so I guess I mostly describe myself as a journalist. I write mostly about the far right uh, and anti-fascism and social movements more generally. Um, and so I wrote both books that you talked about and contributed to you know, a half dozen other books and uh, write for a number of places, uh, NBC, Daily Beast, Truth Out, um, Al Jazeera, a number of spots. Um I think what got me started with it, I think it was actually a slow process, but I can tell you what's got me started writing it, which is almost mm -hmm. a different thing, um, which I had started. There was a, um, a, a series of far right events that happened where I was both when I lived in uh, Eugene, Oregon, years and years ago. And then when I lived in upstate New York and in an effort to understand it better. I, I started looking for podcasts because this was like, I think maybe the week that I've got a first like podcast app on my phone. So <laughs> I, just sort of been the, I can't remember exactly if it was at the very beginning of 2011 or the very end of 2010. But um, the first podcast I came across was called Vanguard Radio. Um, and they were having a series of interviews with far right people. Um, and it was incredibly erudite and coherent in a way that you just didn't normally expect, particularly from American white nationalists. And I thought, wow, that's really frightening and could be incredibly persuasive. So if, to cut to the chase for people that don't know, Vanguard Radio was Richard Spencer's podcast um, mm -hmm. it was with AlternativeRight.com. So Richard Spencer was the erudite host of that. Um, and so as years went by, I just kept listening and tuning in and starting to read 4chan and other places and then started tracking it slowly but surely with no plan of how to do that outside of an organizing space. And so then when we hit about 2014, there was a starting to be an avalanche of what would become um, very obvious in 2015. Um, and I started pitching people um, to write about it. And particularly from left-leaning publications, the response I got was, oh, those people aren't important. No one is ever going to talk about those. And most importantly, those people will never have an effect on the political climate of the United States. Um, oh, shit. I, was, I, don't know, guys, I just feel like they're wrong. Um, and so I started working on it anyway. And it was slowly but surely. And then, you know, people let me write a book on it. And um, I continue to poison my life with white national podcasts and, and, uh, and other terrible things. Oh, my God. Yeah, I, I, I definitely feel that pain. You know, I... I even before the pandemic, I would say that like studying the right wing, it's almost like studying like a deadly virus. Like I walk around, you know, and I'll say to someone like excitedly like, oh, you won't believe this horrible thing that they just did. Yeah. 
uh, or like this horrible thing that I just read. Um, I don't know if this is something you have to deal with. The, the only th- way to actually do it, to actually consume it in a way where you're able to see shifts and trends and get to know people and to plan things. So to really understand it in a way that's not that you have actionable information is to integrate it into your life. So like I can't just sit with my notepad for an hour a day and listen to a podcast because there's dozens of podcasts released a day. So instead, you have to sort of like play it in the car and play it while doing your dishes. Yeah. Around and figure out how you're going to you know, annotate that or create some kind of record of it. So it filters into your life in a way that can be really, really toxic and damaging. You know, like it, I, I remember feeling very embarrassed that I was listening to a podcast and writing notes about it. And my wife was able to say, oh, is that Richard Spencer? And this was long before he was famous. And I was like, oh, no. you, now you have to know these people. It's terrible. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I think, yeah, so it, it, it definitely leaves a lasting impression on you and not necessarily any good way. Not good for your mental health. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well. Uh, this brings up one of the questions that I wanted to to talk about with you is that um, your two books are sort of, you know, j- just based upon the times in which they came out um, related to the rise and then the the decline of what we call the alt-right um, as a particular political formation. Um, actually, I guess I don't know if you agree with that, with that claim that like the alt-right that existed when you wrote uh, fascism today in 2017, um, at least with other folks that I've talked to and read and from, from my reading, that formation is ulti- is, is effectively gone today. Um, yeah, I, would you agree with something like that? I might frame it just slightly differently. Yeah. So the way I frame it is I think the alt-right has three phases sort of. So we have this phase one, uh, alt-right 1.0, let's say from 2008-ish a couple of years in the formation of what would become alternative right.com. There's a number of places that premeditated this. So Richard Spencer's run at Tacky's Mag and then um, HL Mencken Club. And then some of the people that were uh, coalescing around American Renaissance mm-hmm. that would all create the sort of uh, convergence that became the alternative right. And there, this goes back decades too. I mean, there's other things that would, that would go to form that, but that's really when it starts to take the turn and the term alternative right starts to be used. By Paul Godfrey and then Richard Spencer. Um, so that runs until um, I put it as the end of 2014 when Alternative Right was taken down on Christmas Day. So Richard Spencer had started to hand it off to a couple of other people. They were going in an even more vulgar direction than he was comfortable with. He would start working on this other project, which became Raid External and National Policy Institute. So he took it offline Christmas Day 2014, created a lot of infighting. It was a big thing. Mm-hmm. About that point, though, they shifted and Alt Right 2.0 became as they sort of dealt with these, this new world of podcasters and message boards, which would be like typified by, typified by the right stuff and, and the Daily Showa. Um, and that's when it was essentially shortened to hashtag Alt Right. And that really blew up in 2015 with hashtag Cuckservative, which was really pushed by white nationalists on Twitter. Um, and that entered the kind of popular lexicon of the right of what became a dissenting riot. And then shortly thereafter, uh, hashtag alt-right trended. And so I think that was the launch of this new public trolley face of the alt-right, which eventually went IRL, as they call it, with activism, of which they were very poor at. And that ended up getting a lot of backlash, both because of anti-fascists and also just because they you know, ended up getting T-platformed because of their own behavior and that kind of thing. And the pressure of anti-fascists as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're right. That, has, that period has sort of come to an end. And now we're in like alt-right 3.0. What is that? It's a little hard to say. There was a period of time I wrote this article, I think it was for Commune a while back, 
called the autumn of the alt-right where i sort of i picked out this piece of a, a of a podcast richard spencer was doing and richard spencer's old podcast was very erudite you know they talked about philosophers and you know film critics whatever you know it was yeah. a very academic tone but in this this podcast clip i had pulled out he was debating about whether or not women are aroused by dick pics um and so i was like this is actually very this is a really good example of what the alt-right is right now, is they're trying to clamor back to some combination of what they were before and doing so very poorly. Um, they're mm-hmm. very heavily deplatformed, so it's really hard for them to maintain the media infrastructure that they had developed before because it was really dependent on uh, like two-way communication on social media platforms. Um, and so that's really tough. I know that Richard Spencer and some of those folks that would have coalesced around MPI are really in a rebuilding phase and with Greg Johnson countercurrents where they're trying to build up their infrastructure again, which is what they had been doing in the years prior to Alt-Right 2.0. And the Daily Show is able and, and that some of those folks are able to actually ride on enough kind of subscribers they were able to get during that 2.0 phase. Uh, but they, I, I think, are also taking lots of hits and trying as best they can to redefine themselves. And and a few people have risen to the top of what I'm calling All Right 3.0, like the Groyper movement and some other. Yeah. And a lot of these people can come back at any point in time. All they have to do is redefine the audience, redefine the the, the platforms they use, redefine their pay, payment processing systems and all that. And they've gone through a lot. Um, but I would say that, that the way that we understood the All Right for a number of years is just radically different now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, this brings up a lot of super interesting questions uh, that that I have um, about, you know, about the right wing in the United States, like, especially if we think about a lot of these movements, uh, as you noted earlier, uh, a lot of their like attempts at activism or like acting IRL, right, Um, uh, largely fell on their face. But at the same time, we see the, the massive success of well, what would have decades before been a like a massively like like an inconceivable wave of virulent and openly racist nationalism uh, in mainstream political po- like like in mainstream politics, uh, both on the Republican and the Democratic Party. Um, so I guess I, I one question that I would have for you is like, what do you consider to be the relationship between um, I guess essentially between the extreme right and the mainstream right, uh, which is which also gets at a, a bigger question uh, that that I have, you know, in my work as a graduate student, and also just as like somebody who lives in the world and is on the left. Um, like like a lot of your work deals with um, with questions about about mass politics. You know, is fascism necessarily a mass politics? What does it mean to be a fascist? You know, after the 1940s, 50s, 60s, 70s, when, you know, when those kinds of things are waning, uh, you talk about lone wolves and stuff. Um, I guess those are two really big, huge questions. Um, well, <laughs> I you know I've been thinking a lot about David Renton's work. Yeah. Uh, an anti-fascist writer and a scholar, uh, attorney, um, from Britain, very prolific and very mm-hmm. highly recommend. And, uh, I was, cause I was writing his two, his two most recent books and was interviewing about them. Um, he wrote a book called The New Authoritarians about the way that the far right sort of mobilizes the center right and mm-hmm. the cooperative coalition. Um, this is especially this is a little bit more in true, true in Europe where they have coalition party systems, but it's also especially true in places like Israel. I And so I think that radicals always have that effect on the center or the right of center so that, that they, they can absolutely push the Overton window. But there is a weird collaborative relationship and it 
I think it goes both ways. And actually, and, and I think to Renton's point is that it works more effectively on the right than it has traditionally on the left. Radical left does not seem that as interested in mobilizing the Democratic Party or something yeah. like that. Um, and so it does a couple of things. So the first thing is that the center right will influence the culture in a way that allows the far right to mobilize. So an example that Renton, I think, t- shows in a book, it hasn't come out yet, that I wrote about uh, labor, uh, about the Labor Party and that claims of anti-Semitism, is that unless a cultural idea has become prevalent, it's really hard to have someone inculcated with it. Um, and so, for example, the arrival of populist Trumpism makes the idea of radical immigration restriction a more common sense idea from which to pull and radicalize someone on an open white nationalist platform. So it's not necessarily that someone is getting these direct white nationalist talking points from Trump directly, but it is the climate in which those ideas have become a little bit more relevant and accessible. So that's the way the center works to the far right. The far right goes does backwards by making something so radical um, that the center right appears totally reasonable. And that has a back and forth movement to the right. They move kind of wobble back and forth until it moves the entire culture to the right. Mm-hmm. And that does that very successfully. I, so I think there's an element of what you're saying about like the more lone wolf type. I think, I think it's Talia Levin that has her book her next book is going to be called like lone wolf pack because there never really is a lone wolf. They always are yes. part of a group. Yes. Um, it's a really clever title and should be promised to be a good book. I, so I think part of this dynamic, there's a really dependable dynamic in white nationalism, particularly American white nationalism, whereby a white nationalist movement cannot really win gains by publicly stating its case very often. Most people, even people pretty far to the right in the United States, if you were to come out with them with open neo-Nazi shit, they're not going to be down with it. Like that, In fact, um, the ideas when phrased really bluntly, it makes ideas that they even may have been attuned to seem less appealing. So if it's you know something like David Duke is coming out and saying, oh, I support you know, closing the border, all of a sudden closing the border looks bad. You know? Yeah. But yeah. so what they do traditionally is they they find a crossover movement that they can kind of pal up with. And this has happened at time immemorial. You know, I don't want to speak to all time because I might be <laughs> things, but but this is a really reflective pattern. So, for example, in the, the, the 50s and 60s, we had the movements to maintain segregation of which the Klan was the vanguard of. Right. So the, the Klan was the radicals, particularly in the Deep South, where they basically were staging like guerrilla war. It's basically like protracted guerrilla war. Um, so what they would do is sort of ally on some level with like the white citizens councils or to a degree, even like the Goldwater campaign later on, where that would look like that would be sort of the above ground movement. Now, th- those things, the citizens councils, those had politicians, you know, those had yeah. uh, real community groups behind them, the Klan, not the same way. And so the Klan could sort of push those ideas and even push themselves as an institution by allying closer, you know, by proximity to the white citizens councils, the Klan may have looked better. This is especially true in like North Carolina and other places where the Klan really was a political force, even into the 60s. So those sorts of there's that, that allyship plays out and again in, in the, the I would say the 80s is a good example of paleoconservatism, white nationalism's relationship to paleoconservatism. Today, we had a process whereby the alt-right had the alt-light, which was like yeah. the, the people who were civic nationalists. They're kind of internet personalities. They use a lot of the white nationalist style, but they didn't commit to full white nationalism. This would be everyone from like Ann Coulter to Gavin McInnes. This would be the bright parts of the world. 
um, uh, Rebel Media. Um, there's a number of it. They've, they've kind of gone through various stages of popularity. Some conspiracy people, Alex Jones, Mike Cernovich, that kind of thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. But this pattern plays out in a way that never ends up good for the white nationalists, because what happens inevitably is that the moderates and we'll call Mike Cernovich a moderate in this only by comparison to Richard Spencer as a moderate. But we'll call him a moderate for this this equation sake. The moderates eventually uh, turn on the radicals and abandon them because they have careers, they have money to make and they they don't have no need for the white nationalists. Night nationalists need the moderates. The moderates do not need the white nationalists necessarily. Yeah, yeah, you know, in uh, in the real Fourth Reich, you'll be the first to go, right? Right. So they they let them go, um, and then the white nationalists tend to believe that, well, okay, good riddance. The divorce is amicable. We don't agree with them on their racial politics anyway, and we've we've escalated to such a point that we can stand our own. And so they do something, some kind of big grand event. Let's say a Charlottesville rally with yeah. a thousand of them, right? But what the reality is is that they can't stand on their own. And they've done so poorly and they can't do it entirely. So they begin to collapse. And when they collapse, they turn on each other. And by that point, the culture has shifted and anti-fascists have so effectively suppressed them. And that has happened in in subsequent generations. Anti-fascism has shut this down in subsequent generations. That that the idea of above-ground activism being successful to meet movement goals has then been kind of tarnished. And so you see what I always call seemingly impulsive acts of violence. The fringe of the fringe then take out their angst because what the white nationalist movement does is builds up its energy by creating apocalyptic fervors, which they then can't answer because their movements are terrible. They're not good at organizing and they've failed to do meet their goals. Therefore, what happens is seemingly impulsive acts of violence, which are always tied directly to the, the, the white nationalist movement, which, of course, is tied directly to the right in general. So I think. We see the ebbs and flows and the decline of a white nationalist movement after its period of increase always comes with violence. That's why I think right now is potentially the the more frightening period in terms of seemingly impulsive acts of violence, you know, shooting up a mosque or a synagogue, that kind of thing. Those have a predictable pattern. to them. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 the pattern of events that you described just now is is it's. I think it's extremely evocative uh, and it, yeah, and exactly. It should be obviously terrifying to anybody who lives in the United States or anywhere in the world uh, where you see this kind of interaction, this push pull um, between, you know, actors who at least want to be mainstream political actors and actors who are on, you know, the far fringes of things. And uh, this is something that, you know, I studying fascism and thinking about it, like, you know, try to always try to tell people is like, it doesn't matter. Well, not it doesn't matter, but like even if the fascists never actually seize state power because they almost never do, yeah. that doesn't mean that they are not like, you know, the the driving force behind, you know, the direction that politics is moving. Right. Um, and they don't even have to be like the leaders of the their particular coalition. They can just be a sort of like like crazy vanguard that's going out and like paving the way for, for, for things that were completely un, un, you know, unthinkable beforehand. Right. And I think we're watching a collapse of the center. And I don't think that centrist neoliberal politics will have a ton of sway in the future. We are living through radical conditions of the economy, of the ecology, of relations in general. And so the, I think the rules, we are leaving a centrist world. And so I think in the coming decades, those kind of politics can have a lot more potential sway. They can also sort of 
infect the impulse towards radicalism. I think it's Robert Paxton that used the phrase mobilizing passions. You know, mm-hmm. uh, the experience of inequality or of oppression actually can make people reactionary. It can also make people turn to kind of liberation movements. So it, I think there's also a war here for how, whether or not we're actually going to confront our challenges by creating a more just world um, or having that impulse robbed from us and put back onto itself uh, with reactionary movements. Yeah, the uncertainty that uh, that you're talking about here is really, um, it, I mean, the, you know, a sort of anxious uncertainty is at least the the experience that I had when I was reading uh, your most recent book, Why We Fight. Um, like uh, in it, you talk about like it. It's it's it. It seems to me like an exercise in, in in attempting to be optimistic about the future while being cognizant of all of these dangers that are present, given you know the global rise of the right wing and their relative success in a lot of countries. Uh, especially in Western countries in, you know, North America, uh, in Brazil, in Western Europe. Um, so I guess um, one final question that I have uh, before before I let you go is um, if if you wanted to give somebody, you know, a listener, somebody who doesn't pay attention to politics, somebody who doesn't understand any of this stuff, um, like one thing that they really need to be looking out for, one organization, one politician, you know, like like something that keeps you up at night. Uh, that you're that you're worried about uh, growing or metastasizing or you know actually gaining gaining power. Maybe if it's okay with you, I'll flip that question around a bit. Please. Maybe it's actually where I see us becoming a like a metastatic cancer that can take on our foes in a way. I I think that there, there's a lot to keep you up at night, and there's a lot of reasons not to sleep. I think, though, that the actual story of the last few years, maybe of the decade, maybe of the century, I don't know, we'll see, is that we are capable of doing really tremendous things. Um, You know, we lived through a massive global pandemic, the reaction to which was to create massive mutual aid networks, which then were used to mobilize around massive anti-police protests, which were then able to expand and grow. We have that capacity. And in, in the last decade, it has been an accelerating series of traumas that lead to mass response in ways that are both organized and spontaneous. Those things work together. And so I think our capacity to take on the absolute crisis um, and to use every piece of it um, as both kind of challenge and opportunity, that that has absolutely grown our ability to care for one another as these sort of structures of power break down is really immense and i think our skill set our ability to do it our willingness to think in that direction the radicalness of new generations is only bigger we have every reason to be optimistic because the reality is that the right has money and they have a certain cynical thing but we have each other. And that's really all we've ever had. So I, I think in a sense, we can look around and say, oh, yeah, there's a lot to keep us up. But but we are as good as we have ever been. Um, we have every reason to continue thinking that we can win. Um, and there's only really one option now, and that's to have total victory, because without that, we are going to lose. And we're talking about a contest of massive collapse. So a loss is a loss for all of us for all time. So we only have winning as a choice, which is great because the left has been so losing that we've taken away the ability to take people's crisis and turn it into something. We have lost the ability to convince people that we have something to offer. We have to actually win. We have to put things on the line. Um, And unfortunate as it may be, 
uh, history has put everything on the line right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, this is definitely the title fight. This is this is it. And we have everything we need. I I, I don't want to overstate it, but we have the kind of new society in Yuduro in every one of these moments. You know, I said in the book that it's not just that these are a window to what could be. These moments of mutual aid, solidarity, of taking direct action, of local organizing your communities, of community self-defense, those are the new, the entirety of the new world, literally challenging the breakdown of the old. So I think that instead of staying up at night worrying about things, I think we should be staying up at night thinking about how best to connect with other people, to share what we have, to have a certain sense of intimacy, to build something new. How can we learn to depend on another person? Because doing that, building community organizations, longstanding social movements, ones that can grow, expand, that can take on other areas of social life, that is both uh, the only thing we can possibly do. Yeah. And it's in a way the only thing we're good at. That's uh that's an extremely optimistic note uh and I'm extremely excited to hear it. Um I I've been god I've been missing uh in person organizing and uh and uh even I mean even just like collaborating with folks on things. You know, I've been I've been sitting in a hole writing a dissertation for the last year. Ugh. Um, and, thank you, know, you for bringing that energy to the podcast, man. I, I think there is also a dialectic of technology. I think that being doing able to do things remote has actually the, the, the mass orientation to some of this remote stuff has actually helped a lot of people who might be introverted or um, can't get out in the communities or maybe they're separated by space has allowed them to build those bonds. And I think so in a way, I think the dialectic that we've reached a certain moment where the conditions actually allow for it to a certain way of um, of constant connectedness. I mm-hmm. think that's also an advantage. So I don't want people to there's often this this uh, way that we privilege certain types of interaction and say that they're maybe more pure than other types. But no, like being on a phone call with someone being on a, t- a chat thread, those are real organizing. Those are real relationships. And I feel really confident now going into the future of this ongoing pandemic that we have some of the tools we need to maintain a very kind of uh, a, a, a not superficial connectedness, something that runs really deep. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. 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 Not to, not to knock it for those that it works for. It's just, uh, it just, uh, is very, it's, it's relatively demoralizing for me. Totally. Uh, in any case, man, thank you so very much, uh, for coming onto the podcast. Thanks for being the, the, the test subject, uh, for me doing an interview. I had a great time. I hope you did too. Yeah. I think you did great. Thanks. Awesome. Awesome. Thanks so much, Shane. Have a great day. That was 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Craig Johnson, and this week I interviewed Shane Burley, author of Why We Fight and Fascism, What It Is and How to End It, both out of AK Press. I'm thanking Sleepy Kitty Arts and Sleepy Kitty Music for our intro, outro, and graphics. And if you enjoy the podcast, uh, have something to say, please like, share, and subscribe. Leave a review on whatever it is that you are listening to this on. Uh, Check out my Patreon at patreon.com slash 15 minutes of fascism. That's 15 minutes of fascism, all one word. Email me at 15 minutes of fascism at gmail.com. All right. Thanks, folks. I'll talk to you next week.